So I got some comments from the, after the first service that, that the uh, several people are happy that I verify that the tassels and everything are the correct length on each other, uh, but that the real problem is how badly this stole clashes with Christmas colors, that that's the actual, the actual, oh, that's the actual problem is how bad it uh, clashes. So um, listen, I'm just trying to hold your attention here. That's all I'm doing. That's, that's the whole, no, just kidding. So, um, but I did have a couple people say, um, hey, we might go with solid colors. So, uh, so that they don't, anyway. Uh, uh, so here's the deal. Um, I would also love to celebrate with you guys that, that the baptisms that we experienced this morning, you guys, we experienced together, represent probably, again, we're not 100% sure of the numbers, uh, but the 46th and 47th or 47th and 48th um, baptisms that we've experienced this year through our congregation, which is more than South Spring has ever had in a year. Um, and so that's really exciting. Yes, absolutely. Add to that... Um, uh, those who get baptized in, in our Israel trip, those who in our congregation who were baptized at Pine Cove and other places this year, and very quickly we are um, up over a, a baptism a week with our church. And that's, that's just a great gift that God has given us, and we're so appreciative of it. So, um, uh, And getting to see two students this morning uh, model that for us is just such a great experience. Um, and on that note, I want to comment, um, we've put together a team of people who have been meeting now for a couple of different teams for over a year in preparation for a capital campaign that we're going to start in the new year. And one of the main focus of that is going to be student ministry space. Some of you who are involved in those ministries, you've seen how packed out our student ministry stuff can be. And, and, uh, and we've actually now seen running the numbers that we may have even a couple of times kind of capped out, like how many students could be in the building. And, and it's risen to a certain size and it kind of plateaued and then dropped off and risen to a certain size. And so that, that number actually may be like, okay, we might could have grown even past that, except it just human beings don't like getting past a certain amount of crowdedness. It's a possibility. Regardless... The team said, um, hey, we're not starting until the new year to really go break into this capital campaign, but we may have people in the congregation um, who through student ministry space, and then we're looking at building maybe a freestanding uh, building that would be adult education space as we're starting a new real uh, push for some of that stuff, and, and very, very uh, highly overdue office space for staff, and then some changes potentially to um, this building over time, because this building was perfect for, say, 350 people here on a Sunday morning in a service, which is exactly what it was built for, but, but for 600 it can get kind of uh, tight in there, and there's some opportunities that we could do there as well. So it's just, a, it's, I'm going to unpack the details in the new year and spend some time on that, but, but the, the team said, listen, there may be some people who would say, one, I know I want to give to that, and two, I want to do it before the end of the year, so make sure it's some Sunday morning, just in case people have got piles of cash lying around and they don't know what to do with it, to go like, hey, this is one option. And so if you would like to do that, you can already do that on, our, on the website. That's always been there. Several people give every month to the building uh, campaign, and uh, you'll be excited to hear. We're going to be starting, starting with a, a, an incredible amount already there ready to go. So I don't want to give anything away. We'll be looking at that in the new year, but just to give you that opportunity as well um, as, a, as something that's going on and coming. So now our hypothesis during the Nativity this year is that during Advent this year, is that the nativity story, the account of Christ, the nativity can be found in the tabernacle. So that's, that's the hypothesis that we've been diving into. Last week we started with the menorah. Um, I think we have a picture of the menorah um, ready to go, hopefully. There we go. So we have a picture of the menorah, and this was where we started, that Christ is the, is the light. 
Um, not a difficult to connect. It turns out it's really not difficult to connect, um, not surprisingly, Christ to the tabernacle. That's very um, clear, very apparent. Like this um, in John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Um, so Jesus is the light. That's the picture that we got. The nativity was all about the light being brought here to the darkness. A shining light brought wise men from the east. Shining angels brought shepherds from surrounding fields. Again, just to get the right image in your head, especially as we're, as we're preparing our hearts to learn more and more about this. Um, one of the things I love to do that helps inspire me as I'm doing planning sermons and stuff, especially, is to look up um, art or throughout the ages when it comes to some of these topics. And so this was one that, that um, uh, John introduced me to a new one of these. So I went back and had to look at some of this. Uh, but some pictures, some paintings have been done over the years of the advent of the angel, the angel showing up to tell the shepherds. So I think we've got, this is, this is one beautiful painting, um, but I feel like it lacks when it comes to the glory of the, the angel showing up, the shining glory of the angel. It's kind of cool, but maybe you could do a little better. So the next one I found um, exhibits that a little bit better, this idea of the glory of the angels showing up to the shepherds in the middle of the night. That's kind of cool and obviously significant. Um, I like, however, even this next one even better um, that really captured this idea of, of the glory of these angels showing up. Um, just a cool, a great painting, really cool painting there. But then the one that, that Redfern, John Redford had found and was showing us this week is actually this one, um, which I just think really captures the idea of a heavenly host, an army of angels showing up, shining out in the night sky um, for these shepherds and them celebrating together with them. The idea that the shepherds, like all Jewish people from that era, would have been longing for, waiting for the coming Messiah. And the idea of they getting there, that they get to be one of the ones that the angels show up and say, he's here. And the celebration that that shows, I love the idea of the shepherds over there with their arms out. Just, just a beautiful picture of the light coming, of Jesus representing that light, and not any light, but the actual lamp in the tabernacle. We see that um, communicated, not even subtly, um, by John in Revelation. Um, Revelation 21, 23, and the city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So again, not subtle, right there in front of us, that Jesus Christ, that the lamp itself was a type of Christ. It was typology. It teaches us Jesus is portraying the same things as the lamp. But today, the next topic is the showbread table. Now, it's an intriguing one to try to jump into, and so let's start unpacking it. First, well, let's look, take a look inside the tabernacle again, um, what it looks like. The tabernacle is not impressive um, if you, there, there are several recreations of it around the world that you can go to. Um, uh, there was one in the desert of Zen that we got to go to one year in Israel. And we drove all this way to go see this. We pull in and everyone's response was, that, that's it? Like that's, that's the whole thing. It's just some carpets in the desert. That's kind of all it looks like. It's just not that impressive. I'm looking from the outside. It's not that big. Um, inside, the, the simplicity of it, but the showbread table, which is the item on the far right nearest the front entrance, that looks like a little table uh, with some bread stacked on it, because that's what it was. Um, a little table with some bread stacked on it. Let's hear the description. Exodus 25, 23-30. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length. About 36 inches. Not that big. 
a cubit its breadth, about 18 inches, not that big. And a cubit and a half its height, about 27 inches, not that tall. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. We're going to look at that again in a minute. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings, and you'll make them out of pure gold. In other words, there are other things on the showbread table other than just bread. Verse 30, and you shall set before the, set the bread of the presence... Just a quick comment, the bread of the presence is a language, the show bread, but the actual language is the bread of the presence. Literally in Hebrew, it's the bread of the face, um, the face-to-face. You're, you're now engaging face-to-face with God. That will carry significance with us in a minute. Um, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Well, so first, let's unpack its appearance a little bit. This is strange to us. So I'll look at uh, picture number one of the showbread table. Here's one, um, one artist's rendering of what the showbread table might have looked like. Um, pretty simple, not big, not impressive. Big old poles with it. You may be going like, man, what's with the big poles to carry that thing? It's wild. We'll talk about that in a minute. But so pretty simple. Another a picture actually shows it with racks on it. You can show that one. Um, that's a possibility as well, is that there would have been racks to store the bread in. Um, we'll look at another one of those in a minute. But here's what's wild. So it's made of acacia wood. You remember um, we talked about acacia wood in the past. We have a picture of an acacia tree um, in Israel. Um, so you can see it's a hardy wood. It lives where nothing else can. It's a type of tree that lives when other things don't. It's tough, it's hard, it's resilient. And many rabbis teach, I think rightly, that the wood in these, um, in these different aspects of the furniture represent humanity, and the gold represents divinity. Well, if that's the case, if that's right, then even the inter- already the integration of gold and wood together in these is already painting a picture of the person of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, that already we're foreshadowing something that's significant of Jesus. However, there's some other fascinating things about the acacia wood that I think you might appreciate. There's lots. Um, most of this, it's funny, every one of the, so far, both of these sermons, I've come at them and looking at the others coming at them and started by thinking, man, I, how am I going to find enough material to fill a sermon on this narrow a topic, the nativity and the tabernacle? And of course, by the time I'm kind of done, I'm actually like, nope, can't include that. Nope, don't have time for that. Nope, don't have, like there's all kinds of stuff left on the cutting room, left on the cutting room floor. Here's one, though, that I just couldn't cut, and that is one of the things that makes acacia wood tough, able to survive in a place like Israel and not be devoured, is is one aspect of its features. If you'll take a look at it, maybe you can see there what I'm talking about. If not, let me do one more, a little close-up on one of those limbs. So many take it, um, the fact that this is one of the few, now some say only, but I'm a skeptic, One of the few plants in Israel whose branches are thorned and yet suitable to be woven together. Such that it is very likely that this is where we get the crown of thorns. This is a crown of thorns made from acacia wood. There's very likely that the, the crown of thorns that Jesus would have worn would have been made from the same wood that the items in the tabernacle were made of. Is that a coincidence? 
Is that supposed to be their own purpose? Like, I, I don't know exactly what, how, what kind of insight is that? Is that significant? It sure feels very significant to me. It speaks to me of the presentation of Jesus in advance. In fact, here's what's wild. Back in verse 25, you shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. No Jewish articles describe that as a rim. All of them call it a crown. That around the gold edges, around the edge of the table is this kind of pinched gold raised area. In fact, on the showbread table, there's two of them that are a hand breadth apart. It's where you can put other items. Now, practically, it helps like we saw in the first, after the first service, I laid a pin up here and immediately rolled off uh, this little table. That, that part of the practicality is when you have that rim around there, things don't roll off as easily. Um, and when things spill, they don't spill onto the floor and stuff like that. However, it also is meant to be a crown made of gold, very clearly. And so we see that, that picture again, the crown idea. And the entire thing is covered with gold, including the poles for carrying, which we'll get to in a minute. Look at verse 29, and you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings, you will make them of pure gold. Now, so on this, in addition to the bread, are chalices for drink offerings. Um, and again, when we start thinking about all the different symbols that this begins to create for us, that there's a bowl for incense that's kept on this table, there's drink offering, there's, so there's, there are bread, oil, spices, and wine. It sounds like the first stage at, at, a, at a, what, a macaroni grill or something like that, right? I mean, you're like, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get oil and bread and wine. Like this is the, that's what is being set on the table. If you go to the Middle East and you sit at a table, they don't start with chips and salsa. They start with bread and oil. That's every single time. It's what it's going to start with. So there's a very potent picture of that. Um, if that's the case. There's other, we, we could spend so much time on so many of these. There's more than one incense container and more than one drink offering container with wine in it. And then in Leviticus 24, in the details about how to make the bread, I'm going to pick just one out of here. Let's start reading this. Leviticus starting in verse 5, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be each loaf. Now, um, two tenths as an ephah, or what my math teacher would have called one-fifth of an ephah, um, now, I want, any, any bread makers in the room? Anybody who makes bread? We've got a few of you. you know, okay, good. So this number will mean something to you. So here's what's wild. Uh, uh, Two-tenths of an ephah is about eight cups. Eight cups of flour per loaf. Okay? All the bread makers are like, I'm sorry, what? Like, that's ridiculous. That's massive. Like, who, who does that? Right. Who does that? I'm glad you asked. This is crazy. You probably thought, wait, that reminds me like that, that a, a one-tenth of an ephah is an omer. That's probably the first thing you thought when you read that. Is that one-tenth of an ephah is an omer. And omer sounds really familiar to me. An omer or about four cups. That's reminding me of something. As a good Jewish audience, you're going, that reminds me, I think it reminds me of manna. You're right. It's exactly what it's reminding you of. So the Hebrew people spent several decades wandering in a desert, that's mo much of which is called the Desert of Zin. Um, it, it actually, you can go there and visit it, and it looks like this. I know that's the Desert of Zin because there's a sign, right? This is literally where you go. You can go in Israel and, and drive through this desert, and it looks like that, okay? It is, it's not the kind of place you want to spend much time, much less 40 years. 
And so there's nothing to eat there. There's very little to drink there. You can see why the crises of of the people of Israel very quickly when God leads them into the desert between Egypt and Canaan is that they're, hey, um, we need some water and we need some food. And so God begins to provide them with a thing that they called manna, which technically means what is it, Um, which no one knows. And to this day, no one knows exactly what manna was. But here's what's wild. Every morning with the dew, God sent a supernatural supply of food, manna. Each day, the people were to gather enough for each person for one day. Enough food for each person for one day is where the name Omer comes from. Exodus 16, 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an Omer. According to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent, an omer is four cups. Okay? Now you go, well, I'm doing the math, Chris. It doesn't feel like it's very significant to me because in the tabernacle, each loaf was made of eight cups, two omers. How does that relate to the fact that God told them to pick up an omer of food every day? A few of you have already jumped ahead because on Friday... On Friday, the people of Israel had to gather enough food for two days because of Shabbat, because of Sabbath. They're not supposed to gather anything on Sabbath. So on Friday, the day before they were to rest in God's presence, they were to gather two tenths of an ephah, two omers, eight cups, in order to make bread from the manna, which is exactly the amount per Um, per loaf that God commanded them to make in the tabernacle. What we see is this hyperlink. God's provision for His people in the desert, carefully linked. Again, think of that as like in your Bible, it's like there's a little underlined section and it's in blue. You click on it and where is it going to take you? It's going to take you to the fact that two-tenths of an ephah is what the bread in the tabernacle was made out, the amount that it was made of these loaves. Okay? This is surely, which by the way, if you click that, would surely take you to Jesus praying, give us this day our daily bread. Not subtle. Connecting. Each loaf. On the sixth day, verse 22, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. Or two-tenths of an ephah. Now, each loaf of bread on the table was made from the same amount of flowers, two days of manna. There's the hyperlink reminded. Now, there's another strange thing here. The common Hebrew word for cake is something like uga. Not kidding, that's actually right. Um, The common word for cake is uga. Um, The common word for loaf of bread is lechem. Okay, lechem, we'll come back to that. Andy, you're going to love this part, ready? But the word here is neither of those. The word here is challah, which does mean a type of loaf or cake, but it's a specific type with a specific feature, a distinguishing characteristics, because it's based on the Hebrew word for pierced or wounded. In other words, these loaves had a hole in them. Now you're probably thinking, this is connecting the most sacred thing to the fact that apparently they had donuts. I'm sure that's immediately where your brain went. That wasn't just mine, but that you thought, of course they did. 
What else is God going to have in his tabernacle but donuts, right? It's got a hole in it. God literally is commanding donuts to be made for his bread in his tabernacle. Although I have no doubt that is true. Um, the, an even more important connection may be this. Isaiah 53, 5 uses the same root word. Surely, starting in verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That word pierced is the same root. I think that's significant. Did God hardwire this into his language? I don't know. Is it foreshadowing or a hyperlink? For sure. So again, they brought these bread, 12 loaves. Listen, Leviticus 24, starting in verse 6. You shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. Now you know why we do a dozen donuts. That's it right there. The original dozen. And you shall get pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. I know you want me to jump on frankincense here, but I need to leave that for Paul next week, as he's going to be unpacking the altar of incense for us. And so I can't steal frankincense from his sermon. Verse 8, every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, as they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offering, a perpetual due. This is a great forecast of what we're, where we're going before this sermon is done. In other words, the priests, remember the priests specifically quite literally represent the people. Remember God said, I'm going to take the firstborn of each family and have them come work in the temple. And then he said, but you know what, instead of that, here's what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to take one whole tribe to represent all of the firstborn of Israel. And in fact, they didn't equal out exactly. And some people had to be shuffled around. They had to make some changes for that. So that it would be the exact representation. This is God commanding his people, make some bread that's for me. Okay. Make this bread for me. This is so God, by the way. This is the God who we serve. I'm commanding you to make something for me. And then I want you to enjoy it with me. So set this thing apart for me. I'm going to define something for you. I'm going to create something for you. And it's going to require some work and effort from you. Parenting, marriage, friendship, discipleship, church. It's not going to be easy. And then I'm going to celebrate that with you as you enjoy, as we all enjoy it together. All of that's his intention. It's so, it's so him to give us a gift, um, to have us make a gift and then give it to us. Now I've got a comment. The Temple Institute, which we've referenced before, that's a group of, of Jewish people who are trying to recreate everything they can so it's ready to go in case a new temple were to show up. They could immediately step in and have all the clothes and all the equipment and all the furniture. Here's how they've designed theirs and what they think the bread looks like. So I think we've got a picture of that. So they think it has these special racks and then look at the shape of the bread. They don't have it as donuts. They have it as these big loaves shaped like U's so that they can, they can actually stack correctly and let the heat off of them and all that. I love, by the way, you'll notice down there, that notice the priest who's trying to carry five or six of the loaves, how he's barely able to do so. Those of you who make bread, when I said eight cups of flour, you were already thinking that. Those of us who don't know anything about that can't imagine that each loaf of bed probably weighs between four and eight pounds. Each loaf. 
So here he is carrying 30 pounds of bread is what he's trying to, this table had to be, now you know what had to have handles for carrying it because you couldn't just pick up this table with the bread on it. It probably couldn't, could barely withstand the weight. This is a hundred pounds of bread stacked on top of a piece of acacia wood with gold wrapped around it. Think how heavy this little table was when all the bread was on it. Who knows? I don't want to argue with the Temple Institute. I'm going to come, there's just not a group you want to argue with when it comes to stuff like this. Maybe you don't, but here's what it reminds me so much of. That much bread that God commands every week for the representatives of His people to enjoy with Him. It reminds me, so in a few weeks, in the new year, we always take a Sunday and I preach on hospitality. Every single year we do that. Because it's a vital thing for a church to do. It's the lowest hanging fruit for any church. It's amazing how many churches are bad at it. We know why, because we're all bad at it. We are terrible at it, and yet God gives us this picture, and when we talk about Abraham, who we will always talk about, and when we do this, Abraham in Genesis 18, when, God's, when God himself, I believe, shows up, and Abraham starts bringing stuff out, he, he totally underplays it, or just a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but in the end, what he ends up bringing out is actually just gobs of food. And the idea of how, what is our hospitality like, God is revealing to us something about hospitality in his mind. I don't know, every week, let's do about 100 pounds of bread. That's a shocking amount. It is the, the opulence of God doing that is meant to show off who He is, which He loves to do. But this finally brings me to the what, most important part of this, I think, when it comes to the nativity. What connects this to the nativity is that it is a table. It's not an ark. It's not an altar. It's a table. Doesn't that seem strange? Here we are in God's tabernacle. Now, once again, that word just <laughs> means tent. We, we, we want to dramatize so much of this. We want to make this some kind of a dramatic thing. Um, I actually have wondered before. We're going to see this when we get to the place in the Samuels when, when David wants to build God a temple, and God's kind of like, no, really, it's fine. You don't need to do that. I don't need a temple. What would, be the, what would be the point of me having a temple? I don't need a temple. The tent works just fine for me. In fact, in my opinion, the tent portrays it better. It portrays the ministry of God on earth at this stage, and even back then, better. The idea that God is centralized in one location versus mobile doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think it does much less. Um, this one here is not, an, again, not this cool word. It's not the Ark of the Covenant. It's just a, it's a table for bread. When we look at the items that are furnished, look at these, by the way. Let's pull up the furnishings again. What stood out to me when I saw this picture immediately was how mobile they clearly are meant to be. I mean, four or six of them have poles sticking out of them to be carried. It's worth mentioning that the temple that followed, the temples that followed, Solomon's temple, Herod's temples, they were grand, they were stable, they were up on a hilltop, and perhaps they typify, to go back to that type mind mentality, perhaps they typify the rule of God in heaven. Perhaps even they typify the, the eternal city of God that will come here and be planted here at some point, the kingdom that will come someday, and we long for that. But that's not so much about now. It's either about then in the past, or it's about then in the future. As a church, we may have buildings, but the truth is we are a mobile temple, a tabernacle. We are the tabernacle carrying these traits of who God is into everyone's lives. 
Remember when Peter in 1 Peter and 2 Peter relates us to the temple, um, that it's like we're more like a tabernacle in that we take these items, the light of God, the bread of God, and the others as we see, and we take them into the community around us. We go and dwell amidst those around us. It's not that you come to this building. This is just a building until we show up. When we show up, that's what makes it a temple. That's what makes it a tabernacle. The Holy of Holies comes here when you, as a follower of Christ, come here and not until. Um, that's, that's the truth of the matter. And we, we want to understand that. But what that means is when we leave this place, that tabernacle goes with us. That light, that bread goes with us to whoever we interact with at the grocery store, whoever we interact with at the restaurant, whoever we interact with in our homes, with our families and our friends. The tabernacle itself was portable. It had no home. It had no place to lay its head, so to speak. And Jesus was born in a borrowed animal pen, in a borrowed animal feeder, and for the years of his ministry, had no home. He said so in Luke 9, 57. As they're going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to them, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The tabernacle typified, back to that word, Jesus' time on earth in his first advent, showing up. He didn't even have a home to be born into. Didn't even have a room to be born into. He didn't have a, 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 a ta- any, anything to be born onto, to be laid into. He had, they had to borrow cloth to wrap his body in. This is, this is the, the ultimate expression of mobile. God with us. That's what strikes us about this, is that he came in a way that made him mobile. He was there. He was in the, 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 whatever the Holy of Holies is like in heaven, and he came and experienced life with us. Who does that? Who comes and slums like he did? Who comes to the, poverty, the spiritually poverty-stricken world that we are and says, I'm going to come, and I'm going to get your dirt on me, and I'm going to get your mess on me, and I'm going to get your dysfunction on me, and I'm going to experience all these things alongside of you. Well, here's what I think that, that teaches us about the nativity, about the advent, is this. Remember the way that God was so angry that the sons of Eli disrupted and corrupted his meals with his people in his tabernacle? Remember that just in the last few weeks when they would show up with the fork and they would take food that wasn't theirs, that was meant to be experienced between God and his people. And God's so angry about it that he judges, condemns, and destroys them over it. Even from the southern mentality, we could wrap our brains around that. If you imagine having your neighbors over and, and you're, you're enjoying the uh, grilling out, you're grilling out with them and you got steaks and you want to show them and have them be proud of, of the experience and to know how special they are to you. And then some random church guy shows up and just takes the steak off, takes the best steak off the grill and wanders off with it. You'd be like, um, I don't think so, right? It's not how this works. Well, that's what the people, that's what the sons of Eli were doing. And God is so offended by it, he destroys them. This is what boggled my mind about this table. God created a table, just a table, for fellowship with his people in his tent. It's that simple. If you've ever fasted, you know the power of hunger and finally getting to enjoy food again. Most of us have never been hungry. If you've ever, I'd love, I'd encourage you to experience it, to truly experience what it is to be hungry. 
Some of you have experienced what it's truly like. You now understand the idea of, uh, if you've ever been out, I do a, a, a kind of a survival camp out with people every year. And every year, all of a sudden, the idea of being awake all night, freezing cold, hungry, tired, exhausted, and all that kind of stuff. And then you, you find yourself just sitting and staring off to the east, waiting for the sun to come up. Would you please rise? Oh my gosh. I'm so, I just need a little bit of light, a little bit of heat. And you get so exhausted in the idea that we long for him the way a watchman longs for the morning. That you learn to feel that way. We, break, we have the opportunity to break open bread every day with him. Because here's what it turns out. It turns out that according to him, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We have the opportunity to break open something even better than bread with him and feast on his word. It's something to really be considering. Do we do that? Do we feast on His Word? Do we engage and enjoy it? Do we, do we really do that? Um, sarcastically, I wrote in my notes, I, and the good news is I also brought a list of all the people who have left Bibles and are lost and found for the last couple of years. We've got them for you. Apparently you're not missing them. Uh, sorry. Anyway, so the... Um, uh, but I decided not to say it, so ignore that. Um, so now, for the connection to the nativity and to joy... To celebrate true joy with me on this day, on this day during Advent, you have the opportunity to join me, and I encourage you to join me in a little town of Bethlehem in Judea. To, to join, to, we sing about it all the time, the little town of Bethlehem that we can join in because a, a mobile party has been brought to Bethlehem. And by the way, some of you automatically, you may have said like, wait, that sounds kind of familiar. Didn't we just talk about Lechem? Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. That's the town that Jesus chose to come to the world in that town, the house of bread. And you get to come rejoice in me because a mobile feast has come. Christ's mass is what we experience. Well, we call it Christmas, Christ's mass. If you don't have a Catholic background, you probably don't know what a mass is. Any, any service where the people gather together, where the church gathers and does the, the things that churches do. The term for that is mass, and it actually comes from a Latin phrase. The Latin phrase, um, est missa est, meaning go, it, the church, is sent. It's sent, go, because you've been sent. And that's the way they wrap that up. It's where the, the word mass comes from. First, as a church, we gather. We come together and we worship. We learn. We greet. We give. We, we serve one another. We pray for one another. And then when we're done, we go and do the real work. This is kind of the, this kind of is the holy huddle. This is where we come and we get together and we, we wrap each other up and we encourage each other. We pray for each other. And then we get out there into the world where the tabernacle is taken with us. There's a time for mourning and for fasting. And I don't know that Christmas is it. I think the Christ mass this time is when we're supposed to be celebrating the coming of our Savior. Now, Jesus talks about this concept in Matthew 19. This came up in my conversation with John Redfern this week about this. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So in the new year, as part of your resolution, diet. Sure. Fast. Absolutely, it's important spiritual discipline for us. Mourn. We need to do some of that. Pray. Fall on our face before God and repent. Before God and repent. During Advent is a good time to celebrate the fact that He came here. 
He actually came to be with us. He came to dwell with us. That's where the word Emmanuel comes from. I urge you, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake, come be filled with the bread of life. It's better even than donuts. It's sweeter and and more life-giving. Come to the table that he has prepared. Here's what's wild. He came to us and he brought his own table. Jesus 6.35 says, "Whoever Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me will never thirst. So join me for a meal of bread and wine, of body and blood. He stands at the door and knocks. If any of us will hear him and open the door, he will come in and eat with us and us with him. Experience the joy of the starving man or woman who will never hunger again. The table found in the nativity most potently is revealed in the fact that he came with us and he brought his own supplies. He came to fellowship with us. He has a table in our midst. See, Jesus meets us there. The truth is Jesus meets us here. He came here to dwell with us. He brought his own table. He brought the candles for our dinner. He even brought the bread. John 6, 20, 32 says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread of heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. There's the showbread table. He came down from heaven, the bread that came down from heaven. God, in the ultimate expression of hospitality, comes to us, sets the table, and invites us to come and partake with him. Therefore, I rejoice when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Once you've experienced the joy of his hospitality brought to us, you'll recognize how little other things have satisfied. And you will know the dissatisfaction of every inferior option. That concept um, is something that I want us to wrap our brains around. So if you will stand. If you've never experienced his hospitality, if you've never opened that door spiritually to him and, and let him come in, And don't picture Jesus as showing up empty-handed to the party. No, he's got the caterers with him. He's the one bringing the whole party. Everything that we need to experience, that we open up and say, I I am poverty-stricken, Lord. I have nothing to celebrate you with. And Jesus says, that's all right. I brought all the stuff. I brought my own tent. I brought my own food. I brought the lighting. I brought the table. I bring everything to this to this celebration. You just enjoy with me is what he's invited us to. If, if you've never put your faith in, if you've never opened that door and welcomed him in to spend forever with you, to show you the goodness of who he is forever, I would love to invite you to do that today. What a great season to put your faith in him. If you have done that and you need to be reminded of this truth, as we all do week after week, this is, this is kind of our version of the priests eating 100 pounds of, of bread all together, right? That's great. And then we have to go out, but we've still got to provide during the week for ourselves as well to, to continue to break open his word. If you've, if you've been through our welcome home process, you've talked to Lance and others, and you're ready to come and join our family, then we would love for you to do that. Granted, it is a dysfunctional family. It's not, we're, we're not, hopefully, not toxic, not abusive, none of that kind of stuff. But we're just as messed up as you are. That's why you're welcome. And it's why you'll fit right in. We need something to be given to us. We need the Savior to bring it to us. We're not going to provide it on our own. If you will, from the Word of God, Jesus teaching about this very topic.
In John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Not surprisingly, the Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. You've never heard that stuff. It's going to sound kind of weird. Jesus is going to clear it up right here. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The very words of God. 